Good morning, Redemption Church. Good to see everyone here this morning. If you have a Bible, open it up to Romans chapter 14. We have three chapters left. I think about six weeks or so we're going to be done with our year and a half, 18-month or 20-month journey through the book of Romans. So start a new chapter today, Romans 14. Ever since Paul started to unpack the conclusions to this wonderful story that sinners can be saved, he's dealt with some really pragmatic issues for people like us. I think probably more poignant of any section, at least to start with, would be that 12 chapter, uh, verses 1 and 2, the transformational part in view of the mercies of God, so transformed in our mind that we are able to do and please the will of God. That, that takes a lot, of, uh, a lot of perspective to understand what Paul is saying there, but two verses on that section, six verses about what it means to belong to each other as the body of Christ and to serve each other. We spent 13 verses, or Paul did, talking about how love infects one another, the love that we've received, and as we love other people, and all the varied ways in which that looks. We saw seven verses where Paul talks about the government and how to respond to authority over us, and then last week we looked at the law of love. And I don't know if it's true, I kind of think it is, that if you ever want to find out what's the heart of a writer, just look at the quantity of what he writes. And here we have in chapter 14, beginning of 15, a chapter and a half on the subject uh, really clearly about how Christians are to accept and treat other Christians who don't think and act like we think they should. The judgmental question. Do you understand? How we spend our time evaluating other people, specifically Christians. So this is really important to Paul. By the way, it happens to be Sort of his last theme when, he, when he's wrapping up Romans, apart from the, the farewells and the greetings to different people that he puts in chapter 16, this is his last subject matter, how we treat each other or how we evaluate one another. And this issue that we're talking about is judgmentalness. Now, I don't have to tell you that's a, that, that problem is pervasive. It is almost human nature to evaluate other people to judge other people. It has nothing to do with uh, uh, whether you're a Christian or not. Everyone does this, evaluates others based on their own standards or their own values or whatever. Um, but the point that Paul's making in this chapter, beginning of this chapter, is in conclusion to the grace that Christians have received by faith in Christ alone. And what he's talking about is divisions and factions that exist within a body of believers. How Christians struggle with each other. In fact, this judgmental attitude that happens somehow where people major on the minors. You understand? And for years, it's been uh, dividing the church. Now, let me give you a little bit of the culture to understand why Paul's writing it here in Romans and why it fits for us today in 2014. Uh, the, the Roman church in Rome was kind of like the capital of the world at the time. 57 AD, uh, everybody was going to Rome whether you were Jewish or Gentile, whether you were slave or free, whatever color, whatever creed, it was like New York City. It was the melting pot of the world, and everybody was there. And when God started saving people, guess what the church looked like? Like everybody, diverse of every creed and every tongue and every color and every faith system it came from, and they all ended up in a place called the church. And true to human nature, it's no wonder that these huge variety of people had trouble getting along with each other. So we have converted Jews who come from a legalistic lists of rules kind of lifestyle who would never think of crossing lines or eating things or whatever. 
and then you have Gentiles who no, have no perspective whatsoever on those laws, and they do it, and they rub each other raw. They just look at each other, I can't imagine what you're doing. And they are, they are at war with each other. Brand new believers who know very little, older believers who think they know a lot, um, people who uh, respected certain days and people who didn't care about any day, people who loved barbecue and people who didn't eat meat, okay? It's as radical as it was, all the varieties of things. And you might be listening to some short list like that and, and think it's so shallow, right? Who, who would ever have a debate about what you eat? Who would ever debate about what days you honor? And you might think it's petty, but, and I suppose it is at one glance, but I want to remind you what Paul's talking about here isn't the specificness of the illustrations he uses in these eight verses. He's talking about the tendency of believers to judge one another in, in ways and in places God had nothing at all to say. These extra-biblical, non-biblical discussions that we divide over. And so he's talking specifically about that. Now, I'm going to use my own life as an illustration to talk about the pettiness of it, okay? So I grew up in a pastor's home. My dad was, uh, got in ministry in the 50s, and I was born right at the beginning of 60, and then you have, like, his, his zenith was like 55 through 75, okay? In that era, in my lifetime, there was a list of things you did not do. And for whatever reason, depending upon what locale you ended up in, in a country, that list changed. So in, in my world, you, you could not dance, you, you could not drink, you could not smoke, um, long hair. You couldn't believe the wars we had over hair length with, with my dad. Uh, there was no smoking and there was no movies. Now, you could live in another part of the world and, and they'd say no card playing and no rock and roll and somehow my dad didn't have a problem with that. So it was very, very subjective, this list that I lived under. Nevertheless, it was true. And to be fair, those things you could look at and laugh and go, who, who would make an issue out of going to movies or music styles or whatever? We did. It existed. In fact, the very first movie I ever went to in my life in a theater was Sound of Music, 1967, okay? <laughs> You're showing your age, born brother. And, and here's, here's how bad it was. My dad refused to go in a theater, didn't want anybody to see the pastor's family in a movie theater, so we drove 70 miles to another town <laughs> to go see Sound of Music. We're not talking the exorcist. We're talking about sound of music. It was, a, it was a big deal, and we can laugh, and we should laugh at things like that. That's ridiculous. But the fact that that list is now gone, and nobody really cares about that list, should tell us some things. Maybe one of the things it should tell us is that uh, probably the things we divide over are minor issues, and they're not that big of a deal, because we'll just change the list as we go on. And probably we should consider the fact that this passage is extremely relevant because we still create lists. And we want to divide over that list and we want to decide what is right and what's wrong for you or for other people. And so uh, that's what Paul is talking about here. And you might not think about it much, but I think about it a lot. In my ministry life in the last 25, 27 years, I've seen the church fight over things that I think are silly, but they don't. Right, the war over whether you, how you school your children has been a huge divisive issue in the church. I believe if you love Jesus, you're going to be a godly parent, you better homeschool. And I believe the same thing, but you better private school. And I believe the same thing, but it better be Christian school. And I believe the same thing, and it should be public, because it worked for me, it'll work for them. Everybody cares about things the Bible says nothing about. Whether you should vaccinate your child or not, some people are passionate about that. 
whether you should drive a Prius or a big fat monster truck. There are people dividing over environmental issues, worship styles. What kind of music does a church need to sing or how, how should it do those things? Whether you should take advantage of birth control or is it a sin, right? I was in a church before I came here where this is really true. We had a family leave the church because we served coffee in styrofoam cups. And after all, everyone knows it's the production of styrofoam punches holes in the ozone, and anybody who loves Jesus shouldn't do that. So don't drink coffee out of styrofoam. And they left the church over that. Now, I'm not judging it. I'm just saying the topics and subject matter of why and when the church decides to pick sides and fight against each other is huge. And it isn't just, you can't just look at this passage and go, who would argue over a day of the week or whether they eat meat? We just invent new ways to judge each other. And so this is a very relevant passage for us today. And I've kept the the kind of the outline really, really simple so we can get Paul's point here. But I've got three points I think Paul makes. Um, the first one is this. Don't judge your brother. Now, these all come with imperatives. Don't judge your brother because God has accepted him. I want you to look at verses one through four. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. Now, let's stop for a second. Before you start wrestling with the decision between who is weak and who's strong, because a lot of people look at this passage and go, clearly there's some weak people here, and they need to get strong. And if these weak people get strong, we'll all agree. That is not what Paul's writing about. He's, he's clearly describing different types of people, but his imperative isn't to, for you weak people to get strong or the strong people to understand the weakness. He's simply saying, don't judge because God has welcomed it. Do you see that? Very simple. There are a couple of phrases that help us uh, get Paul's point here. He uses the word welcomed in verse 1. Welcome him, but, do not, but not to quarrel over opinions. The word in some of your versions is the word accept. The point, it just means, is to be, uh, have your heart open to other people. Don't pick sides. The phrase past judgment in verse 3 means to come to a negative conclusion on other Christians based on issues of personal preference. Don't judge. Don't pass judgment. In other words, real simple rule here. Where the scriptures are silent, God is silent. And, and no one should create rules or laws where God is silent. Make sense? So... Just a side rule here. Now, th this phrase, don't judge me, has been captured and taken hostage and used wrong for so long, I, I, can't, I can't tell you, okay? So we have to stop because of its abuse and talk specifically about what it means to judge or not judge a believer. Now, we look at this passage and he says, who are you to judge? And, and we're going to get to the point that Paul is only talking about the things that God has not said, the extra biblical things where God has been silent. You and I should not pick sides. But God hasn't been silent on everything. And God has said a lot of things, absolute things, imperative things, commands to do and commands not to do. And in that category, church, we do play a role in each other's life. We are, in essence, our brother's keeper. Now, here's what I want you to know. You're going to feel judged. 
When it comes to sin in your life, if you choose to go off the reservation and live any way you want to live in spite of what God has clearly said, that when the church does what God has called it to do, to call out sin and to love you, you're going to feel the same thing. Let me give you a couple illustrations of of what the scriptures say about how we are supposed to respond to each other in love in a role of judgment, okay? Now, most of you have heard the Matthew 18 passage that deals with how brothers deal with brothers in sin, right? But let me just remind you what Jesus said about the role that we play in each other's life. If your brother sins against you, go to him and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you've gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile or tax gatherer. Meaning, if you have a professing believer who refuses to see the sin, and they won't turn from their sin and they won't repent from the sin, you and I should treat him like he doesn't believe. That's what Jesus said. Paul talks to Titus about another commandment of our role in each other's life in Titus 3, where he says, as for a person who stirs up division, this kind of quarreling and separation, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing to do with him. Now, let me ask you a question, church. If we responded this way to sin in other people's lives, Christians' lives, would they not feel like they were being judged? It's okay. The answer is yes. (laughs) Yes, they are going to feel it. Not in, not in a harsh way. Now, we could clearly do those things in a wrong way. We can do it in a, a we're better than you way, not in a gracious way, not in a I could never see myself failing like you kind of a way, but in love as another crippled person to another crippled person saying, this is what God says, and you're not going to be free there, and you're not going to be whole there, and you're not going to know love there, and you're not going to see God's power there. I'm calling you to turn from your sin. That role we play in each other's life, and if we do that, if this person refuses to turn from their sin, how are they going to feel? Who are you to judge me? Right? Mind your own business. That happens everywhere all the time. Now, that's a wrong use of judgment. Now, let me give you another one. It's kind of a more poignant, practical uh, kind of uh, example. Paul writes to the church in Corinth, and the church in Corinth had a lot of issues. But one particular that he deals with in chapter 5, 1 through 13, is a sexually uh, catastrophic issue in the church. Here's what he says. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you And the kind that is not tolerated even among pagans, people who don't believe in God. For a man has his father's wife, and you're arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. Skip down to verse 9. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world, or the greedy or swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he's guilty of sexual morality of greed or is an idolater, reveler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to what? Say it. Judge. God judges those outside, purge the evil person from among you. I have to say this. It would seem obvious 
that God hates sin and loves righteousness, that when God changes a person's heart and truly God takes up residence in us, we should hate sin too. But the reality of it is we are trapped in this body of sin and it wants to war with what God's doing in us and sometimes believers, good people, go different directions when it comes to God's word. We play a role in each other's life. Say, brother, stop it. Stop it. And there are some sins, some sins, like divisiveness for one, that when we respond biblically to those issues, the person's going to feel like, who are you to judge me? You're way too heavy-handed. This is too harsh. Now, I don't want to be heavy-handed. I always want to do things as a gracious sinner, recognizing my inabilities, but we have to obey the text, right? Good. Okay. That's the right answer. We have to obey the Bible. In love, we call out sin. However, what Paul is talking about in these eight verses isn't dealing with sin in one another. It's dealing with non-biblical differences, things that God never said anything about. Do you understand? And there's a huge variety of those things, of which, for the most part, the church decides to divide over. Okay? Now, let me just point to you the punchline of what I said. That first point was don't judge your brother because God has accepted him. And most of us will look at the imperative and not judge and say, well, that's the point that Paul's making. I'm going to suggest to you there's a bigger point here. And and that is in verse 3. For God has welcomed him. The why of why we don't judge is because of how God has welcomed him and us, by the way, by his gospel. That's why we don't judge. In other words, every person in here Every person you've ever met who claims Jesus as Lord and Savior is saved for one reason only, by God's grace alone. You don't bring good works, you don't bring a righteous life, you don't bring church attendance or prayer ability, you don't bring your knowledge, you can't bring anything to the table when it comes to salvation. You don't offer things like that to God, because even if we should somehow create a standard of righteousness of our own, it would fail by massive comparison to the holy, absolute, perfect standard of God, and we all fall short there. So no one gets measured based on work. Every person, no matter how good or how bad, humanly speaking, all, all enter into the kingdom and find salvation only because of God's good graces, right? And so here's the reality of of this phrase. God has welcomed this person. Whoever you're fighting with, whoever you're warring with, wherever this judgment is going, stop it because God feels this way about him. And grace, this grace that we live under as Christians has nothing to do at all with where you send your kids to school or if you decide to vaccinate, or if you vote left or vote right, or whether you drive a big truck or a Prius. It doesn't matter. The grace of God doesn't address those things. The grace of God by which we stand says sinners need a savior, period. Right? So God doesn't accept anyone on the basis of what we do. We've just spent 18 months studying that. He accepts us only on the merits of Christ. There's a phrase the reformers put out there that helps us understand the kind of the totality of it. By grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, nothing else, period. End of story. No more writing. No more adding. No more law. Right there. Grace, faith, Christ, period. So to put it bluntly here, as Paul would say to the church, who are you? Who are you, Christian, to reject people God has accepted? Think about it. Is your standard higher than God's? Really? 
Like, do you really think that the things you decide not to do that God has never spoken about make you more acceptable or that your standard somehow is greater than God's standard? Everyone should feel a little shame at this point because it's stupid. Of course not. Here's the second thing Paul says. Verses 5 through 9, stop judging because there's a variety of convictions. Stop judging because there's a variety of convictions. One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God. While the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives to himself and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and lived again, that we might be, he might be both Lord of both the dead and the living. Why would someone consider one day more important than another? Why, why would someone say that eating meat would be wrong or eating vegetables would be wrong? Why would some decide that God really, really cares about how you school your kids or how you vote. Why, why, why would we have such variety here? This is going to be really deep. You ready? Because we're different. We're just different. We come from different places and different cultures. We come from different backgrounds and different experiences. Some of us have wounds and scars and pain we, we kind of live out of, and some of us don't have any of that, and we live out of that, and we're all different. We're just a bucket of people that by God's sovereign hand has put us in the conditions and the places that we are, and we live out of those things. We're different. That's why things like a day would matter to some and not to another. That's why food to some would matter and not to another. That's why how you school would matter to you and maybe not to someone else, or pick your poison, whatever the case might be. And this is a rule of thumb here too. We tend to to care more about things that are a part of our history that have affected us deeply. So, in other words, if you um, grew up not knowing Jesus or anything about the gospel or anything about how God cares about sin, and your whole life is a testimony to train wreck, like your whole life is full of scars and regrets, I can tell you how you're going to parent. You're going to freak out in fear and go, that'll never happen to my child. I love them too much. And so all the fences will go up. And I'm not judging that. I'm just saying that's how it happens. Based on your experience, it's not going to happen on your watch, right? Some of you had a wonderful growing up experience. And so for you, it's just rinse and repeat. You want to do the same thing. Hope I can be as good as my dad. And some of you look back and go, you know, that one was kind of jacked and that wasn't very helpful and that kind of got in the way. So I'm going to make some adjustments when I when I become my own man. Got it. That's how this whole thing works. Based on the circumstances that you're under, you make changes. Now, I want you to see two thoughts, phrases in this, this text here that help us really get to the point of Paul uh, that he's making here. The first phrase is this. Now, this gives structure to this, okay? Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. James Boyce um, said this. Notice that verse 5 does not say, let everyone do what he or she feels is right, because after all, the person is convinced in his or her own mind. He does not say the person involved is convinced and therefore should not be challenged. 
but rather that he should be convinced. This means, now listen very carefully, this means that Paul is willing to treat each believer as a responsible thinking person, not merely one to be led about docilely by a self-styled strong believer. Therefore, we have a responsibility, each one of us, to search out these matters for ourselves. What, what, what Boyce just said there was that God, God asked you to think and you to sort out and figure, figure these particular non-biblical issues out on your own. Now, if you're thinking about this phrase, each one should be fully convinced in his own mind, then there should be a question popping up in your mind. It should be automatic. How do you become fully convinced? You're asking this question. What does God want me to do? You know that little bracelet they used to sell? I don't know if they still sell it. What would Jesus do thing? Although corny, maybe old, the theme is still true. God's people concern themselves with God's will. And we're asking the question, what would God want me to do about this particular thing? Now, I know there's division and there's all sorts of separation. It's a heated battle and debate over what we're supposed to be. But what would, what would God have me to do where he has been silent? And I would suggest to you that uh, in order to be fully convinced, it requires some work. You got to think. You got to read. You got to pray. You got to ask. You got to use your brain. What are the issues and why does it matter? You've got to read the scriptures. Does God have anything specific to say? Any principles that apply? You've got to ask godly counsel, and you've got to depend on God in prayer. And then, then watch this. You're, you're going to see a more free choice. Now, we saw in Romans chapter 12, verse 2, probably a more poignant way to put this, but watch the outcome of good thinking. Verse 2, he says, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. How do you know the will of God? How do you know it? He tells you very clearly. Transform mind, renew mind. We'll know. He'll tell us exactly where this stands. So, in other words, when you think, when you pray, when you ask, when you read, when you wait on God regarding these non-biblical debated issues, watch how free you are. Now you don't have to worry about it. And you don't have to walk in guilt when someone says, I wouldn't do that. You're totally free because you've actually done the work to be fully convinced in your own mind. You're not just walking around following people. Make sense? Smile, everybody. Okay. Here's the second thing that I noticed in this, in this text. Did you see how many times that he refers to the Lord in these verses? Seven times in four verses. Uh, there's lots to be said here, but let me just make one major point. The obvious point, the question that we ask when we get to these divisive issues, are we fully surrendered to the Lordship of Jesus in our life? If you're trying to decide what it is that is right for you or not right for you, you have to ask a fundamental first step question. Am I surrendered to Jesus or am I just a selfish puke? Do I live for me or do I live for him? Because if you're stuck on you, you won't make the right decision ever. You'll be selfish and you'll do what benefits you and you won't serve the king. But if you're fully surrendered to the lordship of Jesus, things change. Now watch this. If you truly live out for Christ, sold out, focused, surrendered to his lordship, in all of these undeclared areas, then do whatever you want. Because what you want to do will be totally affected and shaped by him because you're surrendered to him. You understand? 
Who you hang out with will affect how you live. If you don't spend any time under the sovereign Lord, then I know what you're going to be. And I know kind of how you're going to pick these preferential issues, how they benefit you. And, and by the way, this is going to get a little crowded next week because we get into freedoms and how Christians are supposed to and not use freedoms for themselves. So this is coming to actually tell us to serve one another by giving up of ourselves. So that's going to get fun. Um, but it leaves me with a, an impression. Some of you, by your own assessment, would say, I'm not following the Lordship of Jesus. I'm not sold out whatsoever. So I know how this is going. You think about your will, your way, your wants, your desires, and your selfish. So, if you want to be transformed by the renewal of your mind, if you want to be convinced in your own mind, then you're going to submit your life completely and totally to the Lordship of Jesus Christ, and then you're free to do what you want, because what you want will look like Him. Third point. Verses 10 through 12, stop judging because there's only one judge. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me. And every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. Paul makes a powerful point here in verse 10. Um, Judgment has a problem uh, because of two parts that he brings up. We've already dealt with one, and that's the negative assessment. That's the judgment part. I just perceive what you do as bad and stupid, and I don't like it. But it's the second part that brings damning to the person, and that is the, the, the idea that, that uh, we despise them. Verse 10, he says, why do you despise? That's what happens when you negatively assess someone. You have to despise them as well. So watch the two sins that come out of this. Not only do you look down at somebody else to do this, you have to prop yourself up to do this. Arrogance, right? You have, to, you have to look down, despise someone, and boast in your own being and, and understanding. That's why this thing is messed up. And Paul's point is uh, you're not the judge. There's only one judge. And to prove that, he doesn't say it once. He doesn't say it twice. He says it three times. There's only one judge whose name is God. Verse 10, for all will stand before the judgment seat of God. Verse 11, every knee shall bow to me. Verse 12, each of us will give an account to God. You won't answer to anybody else. You won't answer to anybody else. Ultimately, you don't have to. When he judges us, we will answer for ourselves. We can't say, oh, by the way, I was following this guy. Over here, it's his fault, not mine, because I wasn't thinking it through. You don't get judged based on what other people do or what the group you hang out with who thinks it's right or wrong do. You get judged by God alone. If you're fully convinced in your own mind, you might be different. You might hold different convictions, and it's okay. And by the way, just, just a truth that should shock us a little bit. The scriptures say we can't discern our own minds and motives. So if I were to just judge me, like if I took everybody out of the equation, the scriptures tell me I can't even discern me. So what am I doing wasting my time on you? I can't do it. I don't know what you're doing or why you're doing it or how you've been convinced or not convinced. I don't know what you've studied or what you've read. 
I don't know who you've talked to, what you've prayed about. I don't know your experiences or where you've been, what's happened to you. I don't know those things. I only know what God has said. And and so therefore, we have the same common place to go. It's called truth, right? And this dictates everything. Dictates everything. God is faithful to these people, so we need to stop leading other people by our judgments. So in its simplest form, three points, Paul Hiss said, stop judging your brother because God has accepted him. Stop judging your brother because there's a variety of convictions and stop judging your brother because there's only one judge. Make sense? Now let's get, let me give you a little bit more practical uh, tools here. I would call them realities, tensions to live with that, that should be obvious. It's going to be profound. Christians disagree with each other. And it's okay. It's okay. It's, it's okay. And you shouldn't be surprised. It's okay if you decide that Disney is evil or Disney's okay. I don't care. It's okay if you decide to vote left or right. I don't care. I don't. It's okay if uh, you decide to vaccinate or you decide not to. It's okay. God didn't say anything. And you just keep putting all your own kind of personally held convictions there. So that's first thing. Second thing is disagreement doesn't necessarily mean sinful. Okay? Just because we disagree with each other doesn't mean we're walking in sinful territory here. Okay? And, and uh, we've been told over and again, we can't make laws for other people. Now, I'll give you a passage. If you want homework, just go read Matthew 15 today sometime or this week sometime, and you'll see this kind of experience Jesus has with people who suggest that what you put in your mouth, what you eat really matters to God. And Jesus' point to that whole discussion was, what goes in you doesn't defile you. You're defiled on the inside. All this external stuff isn't what makes you right or makes you wrong. You're wrong on the inside. You need a covering of your heart, not what you do. Will your behavior change? Absolutely. Will he be the Lord of your life? Of course he will. Will you stop things you're not, that you don't know are wrong? Of course you will. But none of those things deal with the heart. They're responses and reactions to salvation. Make sense? One other thing. Please know the difference between closed-handed and open-handed issues. There are things that we hang on to with white knuckles, and they'll have to kill me to get it out of my hand, okay? And it's everything God has said. As unpopular as it is, as culturally as insensitive as people would accuse us of being, where God has spoken, I'm not confused. I'm not willing to give it up because people are uncomfortable with what God said. I want to be loving. I want to be the hands and feet of Christ. I want to always ask the questions about me and how am I messing this up. But God didn't mess this up by the instruction, did he? So let me give you some examples about closed-handed issues. Inspiration and inerrancy of the scriptures. This is God's word. There's not a mistake in it. The deity of Christ, that he is God come in the flesh. That he lived, died, and rose again. He was born of a virgin. There is such a thing as heaven and hell. Those are absolutes. He is coming again. The gospel is true, and it's by grace alone. Now, that's what I won't let go of and everything else the scriptures say. But then there's this thousands of things that, that the church has always warred over and made denominations out of that have nothing to do with what God has said. And all Paul is saying, listen, don't, you're not judges of each other when it comes to these things. Each one should be convinced in your own mind. As the Holy Spirit leads them, as you grow up in Christ, and you're going to look different, and it's okay. In fact, I think it's good. I think it's good that the gospel um, draws a people together that look as diverse as his kingdom. 
I think it's good. One other thing. I think you need to understand this. If we're really going to welcome the person and not quarrel over opinions, it requires humility. We saw this uh, little sentence that Paul used in Romans 12, verse 16. And it kind of gets to the point of what we've been talking about. Where Paul says, never be wise in your own eyes. And when it comes to divisive things where God has not spoken, this is how, it, this is how it's experienced. Somebody comes down on somebody else because they're absolutely certain they're, they're right. And they're wise in their own eyes. And there's arrogance there. And I want you to understand this. Truly humble people are free from having to play God for others. You don't have to. You can let it go. Relax. God knows what he's doing in everybody's life. So before we, uh, before we pray, I want to encourage you to do a couple things. I, I want you to... Uh, not leave here and just blow this off. I want you to leave here, and I already know this. There are things that God has maybe brought to the surface in this sermon where you have been divisive or divided or think it's an absolute, and you have no clue. You have no clue. Then you need to get busy making up your own mind, according to the truth of scriptures and good counsel, what is true for you in those extra-biblical, non-declared issues, not the, not the closed-handed things in the Bible. And then, then you need to do this. Let, let other people make up their own mind too. Let them. Let the Holy Spirit grow them and convict them based on their circumstances. And then one last thing, and I think it'd be a good exercise for the church. Stop focusing on the differences that make us war and conflict. Start enjoying and celebrating what unites us. And that is the wonderful good news of God's grace to every sinner who would believe. Every sinner. Whatever stripe, whatever creed, whatever tongue, whatever absolute train wreck or good life you've come from, you need a Savior and Jesus is the only one we got. And, and ultimately, that is the, that's what the kingdom of heaven is going to be like. Celebrating the fact that God took this mess called the world and brought it together under the Lordship of Jesus Christ and he gets all glory, honor, and praise for now and forevermore. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together. God, I thank you for the gospel. It never, ever gets old to me. I thank you for how pragmatic and practical this passage is for us. It exposes one of the things that we struggle with, and that is we're certain that we know best, and the reality is we don't, and so we confess that. We confess our dependency and our lack of understanding, and we also know that if we lack wisdom, as James says, we can ask you who gives it graciously. Father, I pray for unity. Not a kind of unity that walks away from truth, but the kind of unity that gathers around Jesus. The absolute certain hope of the world. Understanding that all these other variables in life that people get so carried away with have a tendency to divide. Paul tells us, don't judge. So God, give us the ability and the tenacity to search out our own convictions with the help of your spirit. Help us to walk freely and grant that to others, I pray. Amen.